This is the Cancer Radio Network. Coming up on this episode of the Colon Cancer Podcast. That cancer, chemo, surgery, radiation, recovery is going to probably be the biggest strain on your relationship. And like my doctor said, know that it will make or break and um, just be prepared for that because it's one more casualty of this disease, I think, that happens a lot more often than people are willing to admit. Welcome to the Colon Cancer Podcast, offering stories of information, inspiration, and hope to those affected by colorectal cancer. I'm Lee Silverstein. Welcome to episode 75 of the Colon Cancer Podcast. How are all of my colon cancer brothers and sisters doing? Hopefully you're doing well. I uh, just last week uh, finished a round of treatment myself. This was my second go around with SBRT treatment uh, for a lung met that I've been dealing with for a while. And finally got to the point where the doctor said, uh, yeah, it's time to take care of it. Uh, SBRT, for those of you that are not familiar, stands for stereotactic body radiation therapy. Sometimes it's referred to as a cyber knife. So it's a very targeted high uh, dose of radiation. Typically it's given in five uh, consecutive treatments. So I began last Monday and finished up Friday. Um, if any of you are looking into SBRT uh, as a treatment option for lung mats, I will tell you this is the second time I've uh, been through it. The first time was early 2015, and uh, in and out, I was in and out of the uh, treatment center in about 30 minutes. Uh, there typically are no side effects. Again, I'm not a doctor, so I don't refer to my uh, story as, as gospel, but uh, my experience and what I was told is typically there are no side effects, So, and that's been the case now twice for me. I walked out of there on Friday and uh, felt absolutely normal. Uh, the tough part, as you know, is the waiting, and uh, you know we wait for scans, we wait for results, and uh, my next scan uh, to see uh, how this treatment worked, and I have no doubt that it did, isn't until middle of November. So, in the words of one of my favorite rock and roll stars, Tom Petty, the waiting is the hardest part. Uh, what else is going on? God, this is the 75th anniversary. <laughs> Not quite. How about the 75th episode of the Colon Cancer Podcast? Hard to believe that uh, in just a few short months, we'll be celebrating our third year doing this. And uh, when I first started it back in 2015, I was like, am I going to have a challenge finding people enough people to talk to? Well, that hasn't been the case, but uh, we are always looking for guests and topics. So if you or someone you know, uh, you think would make a interesting guest for the show, I'd love to hear more about it. You can reach out to us. Just go on the colon cancer website or uh, the colon cancer podcast website. 
Just go to the coloncancerpodcast.com forward slash guest, and there's a form that you can fill out to nominate a future guest, including yourself, if you'd like, uh, for to be interviewed on the show. So check us out again at the coloncancerpodcast.com forward slash guest. I'm real excited about the upcoming annual colon cancer conference taking place November 1st and 2nd in Cleveland, Ohio. And I uh, can't wait to see many of you there. We will be podcasting from the venue. So if you're not able to attend, know that the podcast, the Colon Cancer Podcast, will be there and we'll be podcasting. So uh, my plan, as we have done with previous podcasts, is to interview as many of the presenters as we can and get an overview of their topic and what they talked about. So for the folks who are unable to make the trip, you'll still be able to kind of tune in and get a feel and a flavor for what's happening at the conference. So more information to follow. Uh, on that as we get a little bit closer. Uh, some fun events taking place in the month of September. I'm going to run through them real quickly because it's all about the undie run walks pretty much for the month of September, starting with uh, this Saturday, September the 9th, 2017, on my birthday. It's my birthday in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the undie run walk taking place right near uh, right near Rocky, right near the Art Museum. I've been there. I know exactly where that is. Uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Saturday, September the 9th. Uh, the following Saturday, we go west to Pittsburgh. The Undy Run Walk taking place in Pittsburgh on Saturday, September the 17th. Then the next Saturday in Detroit, Michigan. And then the last Saturday of the month, uh, September 30th in Cleveland, Ohio. And then I'll jump over. Uh, we'll go one more event. October 7th, we're going to be doing two undie run walks consecutively at the same time, but in two different places. We will be in New York City uh, for the Undy Run Walk on the 7th at Firefighters Field on 425 Main Street on Roosevelt Island. And on the exact same time on the 7th, we'll also be in Cincinnati, Ohio uh, at Lunkin Airport Playfields. So those are the upcoming Undie Run Walks. For more information on all of the events taking place uh, with the Colon Cancer Alliance, just jump on the website at ccalliance.org. If you have an ostomy or are undergoing chemotherapy, you know at times it can be a struggle to stay hydrated. That's where H2ORS can help. H2ORS is an oral rehydration solution, which is an over-the-counter electrolyte drink mix for dehydration. H2ORS is a medically accepted alternative to IV hydration. So, for those of you who are struggling to stay hydrated due to an ostomy or chemotherapy, H2ORS can help replenish your fluid and electrolyte levels. It has three times the electrolytes of most sports drinks without the excess sugar, artificial flavors, or artificial colors. If you would like to try a free sample of H2ORS, go to h2ors.com sample and they'll ship one out to you. No strings or hidden costs attached. Also, when you make your first purchase at h2ors.com, if you use the code CCPOD, you will get 10% off your first order. My guest this week is Sarah DeBoard, and I was really excited to get the chance to talk to Sarah. She and I met at the Colon Cancer Conference in Phoenix back in 20, 
let me get my dates right, 2015, 2015. I don't know what took me so long to get her on the show, but thank you, Kim Newcomer. Kim was the one that prompted me and said, you should talk to Sarah, and I am so glad I did, and I know you will be too. Uh, we covered a lot of uh, really interesting and somewhat intimate topics, including the effect that uh, cancer can have on uh, on on relationships. And uh, Sarah, Sarah was very open and honest about um uh, her story. So uh, I'll let her tell it. So join me now for my conversation with Sarah DeBoard. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the show. How are you this evening? I am greatly. I'm so glad you just, you came on board. I, I, I guess I should say I'm so glad I finally got over the hump and, and <laughs> thought to bring you on. Our yeah. paths crossed at a, at a conference a couple of years ago, and I'm always looking for guests. And uh, Kim Newcomer and I were chatting online. She's like, how about Sarah? I was like, duh, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> so I'm glad we were able to make this happen. I appreciate it. Uh, where I wanted to start was, uh, how did you get involved and wind up working for the Colon Cancer Coalition? Um, I, I'm originally from LA, and I had come out to visit Minnesota about 15 years ago with a girlfriend who's from here. And fell in love with the Twin Cities, you know, before the plane even landed and had been trying to get back here ever since. And the opportunity presented itself to move here. And I knew the Colon Cancer Coalition was headquartered here. And within the first year, they, they host an annual survivor and caregiver dinner. And I attended that dinner and met some of the staff and, you know, kind of kept them, you know, in the background at the time. And I, I have no background in the nonprofit world. I'm My background is in Hollywood. Um, and working in TV commercials. So it was very unfamiliar territory. And then the opportunity to actually work for them popped up and I applied and they gladly had me. And so I've been able to work for them, transition to the nonprofit world and kind of develop some talents I didn't know I had um, working in it. What is your role with them? Um, I do a little bit of everything. I kind of call myself a girl Friday, but primarily uh, communications, project management, I do majority of the social media and write a lot of blogs, do a lot of writing. Um, we don't do patient support, but if uh, survivors or caregivers do reach out to us, I'm usually the person that gets to work with them and connect them with the support systems they need uh, to help them along the path as well. So I'll do any task that's put on my desk, but it's primarily communications and, and projects. Sounds good. Um they don't have quite the visibility of some of the bigger organizations. So for those folks that might be listening that aren't familiar with the organization, uh, can you give us a little rundown on, on who they are and what they do? Um, primarily, uh, we put on events that raise money in local communities. Uh, some of the money um, goes to local efforts. Some goes to national efforts. Um, if anybody's done one, they're called the, the Get Your Rear and Gear 5K Run Walk. We also do a tour de tush bike ride, and in a few cities we have the Caboose Cup, which is a golf benefit. Uh, the funds that are raised um, locally go to support any colon and rectal cancer programs, survivor programs, patient support. Um, one thing we love to do is go into communities and work with community health centers to create screening programs for the underinsured and uninsured people in the community. Um, that helps to not only work towards the national goal of 80% screening by 2018, but helps close the gaps in health disparity and cultural disparity, which are huge with this disease. Um, we have large immigrant populations who we have to face cultural barriers with and trying to say, you know, talk about subjects that culturally might not be appropriate for them. 
Um, and then obviously the health disparity issue with the underinsured, uninsured, um, and minorities. So, yeah, I call us a fundraising event or an organization that does events to raise funds to give money back. So we're a grant giving organization. I see. Thank you. That helps. That helps uh, kind of differentiate you from some of the others. And it sounds like there's a nice uh, grassroots component to it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I saw a post of you doing some work uh, training advocates. I most let me think about that. That would probably be recently. I went to Colon Camp with the Colon Club. Uh, they invited us to come along to, to teach the new up and coming. Uh, featured survivors about different organizations. I was there with Michael Sola from Fight Colorectal Cancer. He was able to share about advocacy and what they do, and I was able to share about what we do, just so that they, some of them new, some of them old to the to the colorectal cancer world, um, could differentiate who we are, what we do, and how they can get involved as advocates, as representatives of the cause. And so uh, it was a fun weekend. It was great to meet some people I already knew um, through the conferences I've been to, through Colin Congress, through the CCA uh, National Conference, through Colin Town, and some I'd never met before. So it was an amazing weekend um, being able to share with them and connect with them. Tell me more about that. What was it like to spend that intense period of time with uh, brothers and sisters that uh, have so much, you know, so, something so personal and something yeah. so much in common. I think coming from somebody who's been at this a long time, not only um, as a patient survivor, I mean, I've been at it almost six years, but somebody that works in the world and goes to events and connects with survivors, you know, almost on a daily basis, it seems. Um, I kind of had a different approach to it where I don't want to say I was kind of um, callous to it meeting other survivors, but it was neat to sit back and watch some of them come into that space that had never met anyone like them. And I remember when I met my first, the first survivor I met, which happened to be Kim Newcomer. She was not only the first colon cancer survivor, she was the first young survivor I met. And it was this instant, like, I can't even explain it. This, this bond, this was my person. These are my people. And so I kind of go back to that point in my my diagnosis, and I think for a lot of those people coming into colon camp, you know, and being in the on the rise magazine for the colon club, I I I can't imagine what it was like to take those few moments I had with Kim Nocomer when I first met her and put that into a whole weekend, and it, it and it's not just one person, it's you know a dozen people just like you. So for some of them, I'm sure it was healing, it was cathartic, it was um, you know, it was magical. Sounds like a. a a silly word, but I think it was downright magical for a lot of them, you know, to connect and realize they weren't alone. They weren't the oddball. You know, I know what it's like to walk into infusion room and be the youngest one there, or even walk in the waiting room and everybody assumes you're there to support grandma or your, your parent and only to find out, no, you're the actual patient and people look at you funny. Um, and so I can imagine for a lot of those young people, some, you know, in their very early twenties to find other people that have had that experience is probably, you know, a bond that, will never be broken for a lot of them. Definitely. Magical def- definitely sounds like the right word. Yeah. I don't think it's a silly word at all hearing you, the way you described it. Well, talking about infusion, uh, infusion number 125 for you. Did I catch that right? Yes. So last Friday was 125. And the only reason I know is because when I first started, um, I had spots in my lungs. They were too small to biopsy. So they, they initially treated me like I was stage three and kind of the wait and watch on the lung mets. Um, 
And so I did my 12 rounds of full fox, which is pretty standard. And I thought there was no way I was going to make it through 12 rounds of this. So on my calendar, I started numbering them. So I would remember to help me count down. I only have this many left to do. And it, the spots in my lungs grew and they were able to be biopsied. And it turned out that it was um, lung mets. And so I moved on to full fury. And I thought I only had to do 12 rounds of that. So I kept counting up to 24. And, you know, I just, my habit on my calendar is I always write the number of treatment, you know, on, on the calendar. And so 125, which blows me away that I have made it that long, not only to be alive, but I've, I've mentally and emotionally and physically survived that many rounds of chemo and, uh, and lived to tell about it. So 125. <laughs> What else does that number mean to you when you look at over a hundred rounds of chemo? There's got to be a, a lot of emotions tied to that, I'm sure. Part of me, I mean, there's obvious, I would say, survivor's guilt. You know, I don't even like brag about it in a way um, because I know a lot of people can't imagine even living long enough to get that far. But at the same time, for me, it's it's kind of like this badge of honor to say, you know, to say so for the people that are newly diagnosed, especially stage four, who think they're terminal, is I can say, I've done this 125 times. It can work. It can work for you. There's no reason to not have faith that chemo can keep you alive and you can get to this point. So, you know, so it's almost like inspirational to say, look, and I hear from people anytime I post about the, the number of years I've been at it, the number of rounds of chemo I've had. People always say, you give me hope to know I can keep doing this and I can keep getting through chemo treatments and I can keep living with this disease. You know, and that's the, the most important thing for me is for people to get out of bed and realize, you know, you can get up every day with this, this evil thing growing in your body and you can still live your life to its fullest, even if you have to do round after round of chemo, um, which is, is not easy, um, but definitely with the right mental and emotional outlook, you can, you can do it. I'm sitting here. I want to yell out, preach it. Yes. Amen. Yeah. How many years has it been? Uh, I'm coming up on six. So Thanksgiving Eve uh, was when I was diagnosed. And so November 23rd, we might make it six years since diagnosis. March 21st was six years for me. So let now people can hear two people yeah. well, that's share the same story. We are in that 10 to 12%, you know, and they always mm -hmm. say, don't go home and Google statistics. I never have. And I, I've never even asked. Yeah, it's the, the five-year survivability is 10 to 12%. And I think, you know, we're proving them wrong. I think there's amazing chemo drugs out there. I think there's amazing stuff and trials on the horizon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they've talked about, and in fact, Psychology Today did an article about it, talking about the new survivor, which is, you know, with all the new stuff that's coming out, stage four survivorship is going to become a long-term thing. There are going to be more and more people living long-term with just chronic stage four disease. So that alone should give anybody diagnosed today hope. I couldn't agree yeah. more. I couldn't agree more. Uh, and you're uh, an exercise fanatic, correct? I, am. I was. I was a, a. I was a runner. I was a fitness junkie when I was diagnosed. In fact, part of the reason I kind of wrote off my very obvious symptoms is I was. I was running a lot. I had just had a baby. I was training for a half marathon. I was circuit training, cross training, and it, I was able to explain the weight loss and the fatigue and the change in bowel habits just on my workouts alone. And so I've tried to maintain that. Um, the running thing has kind of fallen to the wayside. Um, it was the neuropathy on full fox. It was just the constant fatigue and nausea when I was on full fury. Um, and now I'm on Herbitox in my 
hands and feet are so cracked. I mean, most days I can barely walk without hobbling. So it's, it's something I've never quite gotten back into, but I've always, you know, walked, hiked and gone to the gym. So staying fit, staying active, not just for my physical health, but for my mental health. I mean, nothing clears the head and changes the mood, like a breath of fresh air, you know, on a hike. So I, I, I advocate for that strongly, even if you don't feel like it. Um, a lot of times, and I used to talk a lot with a, a friend, a mutual friend of all of ours who's since passed, Nathan Allen. I was and just going to mention his name. Nathan and I used to, to message each other almost daily with pictures from our walks and our hikes. And he would be out walking and killing, killing the sea, as he said. And I'd say, man, I'm out walking off the nausea. And sometimes that's all I could do is I'd go out and it didn't matter how slow it was. I'd take my pill and I'd go walk until the nausea was gone. You know, just take in nature, clear my head and forget about how I felt. And um, so that was important for both of us and a real connection for both of us. So I definitely I'm definitely a big supporter of of exercise, even if it's just walking to help help in the emotional, mental and physical aspects of fighting the disease. Uh, it's, it's so true and I'm sitting here listening to you talk about Nate and yeah. he was the one he came to me and he said you were the one that got me walking mm-hmm. and then he started sending me Fitbit invites yep. and I was like dude I'm not ignoring you it's just I'm getting yeah. tired of getting my ass kicked by you at the time I had a Fitbit I sent switch back to Garmin but um, we would we would Fitbit each other all the time and you know it was just great that he, the, the type of attitude we both, I think, embody the same attitude when fighting the disease. It's just, you know, that it, it doesn't matter how you know what pain you're in, how nauseated you feel, how tired you are. Just, just go out and do it. You know, enjoy life. And, and, you know, take in everything there is to offer. I mean, I was doing the treadmill with my Folfox pump on, and I don't say this to brag. It was. But it was this psychological thing, and I think you understand that I, I can't be sick. I'm perspiring, right? Yeah. You know? So it was absolutely, I say it was more for my mental health than my yeah. physical being. That's um, what I tell people all the time is it's, and I, because I have lung mats, especially in Minnesota. Me too. Me too. When it's yeah. freezing cold in the winter, I'll go out when it's zero degrees, and I'll bundle up, and I'll put on my balaclava, but I'll inhale that cold air and I'll think, God, that cold air has got to be freezing those little tumors. You know, <laughs> I, I hate to say like visualization, but that's, that's, that's what I do. And I think it helps. I think breathing in that air every time I'm out, if I'm at the gym or hiking, I think this oxygen, this good, pure, clean air has got to be everything cancer hates. So it, it helps with the lung mats to be able to use that kind of mental connection as well. Absolutely. Well, you know, I looked at your story and you were just another one whose doctor blew off your symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's such a disturbing, you know, trend. Uh, when you look back on that now, how do you emotionally feel about what happened? Let's just say that I, I remember his name the original doctor who gave me a flex sigmoid when I was about 24. I remember his name. I remember where he worked. And if I ever find him, I will gladly tell him, you know, how he treated me, what he said to me and how I carried that for the next 10 years, ignoring my symptoms because a gastroenterologist has told me it's probably just hemorrhoids, even though I didn't have any. And it about, I see I was 30. My maternal aunt was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer at 51 and the following week, my mother was in the hospital having a colon resection because she had had a perforation during a colonoscopy. And her gastroenterologist, 
and this was about, I'd say, four years before I was diagnosed, came to the hospital room. I sat there. He knew her sister had just been diagnosed at 51. I later found out that he knew she had had polyps since she was 40. And he never said to me, he never said to her, your family is at risk for this disease. There was no genetic testing. Um, there was no warning to us, you know, because I would have run off and gotten a colonoscopy immediately. And I would have still been diagnosed with colon cancer, but at least I would have caught it in an earlier stage. And so should I ever be alone on an elevator with him, he might not walk off. <laughs> so that I, mean, I think that's, and, and then again, I, I through my work and through connecting with other survi young survivors through Colon Town, I hear the same story over and over and over again. The misdiagnosis, the ignored symptoms. Um, there was several opportunities for me to be diagnosed and that were missed, including right after I had my second baby, I was so anemic the doctor didn't want to let me out of the hospital, but he did. You know, he made up some excuse and released me. And I thought, well, you know, why didn't you ask for a follow-up? You know, blood work to find out why, you know, why didn't you want to get to the bottom to the, you know, why was I so anemic? You know, so I could have been diagnosed 12 months sooner. And th those stories are so common. You know, people are, you know, young people, their symptoms are ignored. They're written off, you know, and it's, you know, when they're finally diagnosed, it's this amazing justification that they weren't crazy, but at the same time, it's disappointing to know they could have been diagnosed earlier had somebody taken them seriously. Hopefully all of the recent press coverage about what's happening with young onset will yes. help uh, go a long way to minimizing this uh, in the future. Yeah, and I did uh, the New York Times, the writer who did the New York Times story, um, she did two when the study came out in March and she just did one that came out uh, yesterday. So that's three stories she's done for the New York Times just this year. But I had numerous people contact me after the article I was in to say, I printed this off and I'm taking it to my doctor so they will take me seriously because I have your same symptoms. I've been complaining. They've been ignoring me. And I'm actually going to take this article and make them read it and say I want a colonoscopy. And um, I just had a, a young guy actually connect with me through Instagram. Saw the story, did exactly that. It turned out it was just uh, hemorrhoids and I think IBS. But he was so grateful for that story because it, it finally motivated him to get checked and rather than ignoring the symptoms. And that's all I want to hear. I will go to the ends of the earth and work, you know, a hundred hours a week to ensure that one less young person has to have this experience. That, it, but at the same time, that's got to also warm your heart a little bit that to know I, that your story is, is making a difference like that. It does. I mean, it just, it's to know you are making a difference and, you know, it's not to say I've done everything in vain, but it's, you know, you, you're not only changing lives because these young people are advocating for their health, but now young people are, no, they know the symptoms and they know they have to talk to their friends and they know it's, it's nothing to be embarrassed about. And so a lot of them that I heard from were taking that article and the information and are going to pass it around. You know, I had mother, I had a mother call me about her daughter who was in college from Florida. And I said, you know, the most important thing is she needs to take that article and she needs to post it in her college dorm and everybody in that dorm needs to read it. I have two sisters that are both in college. They're very, you know, aware of everything to do with colon cancer and signs and symptoms. And I'm like, you guys need to educate your friends. Share my story in your dorms, you know, in your sororities, in your classes. Uh, my oldest sister is pre-med, and I know she actually did a report on my through my blog, using my blog about colon cancer. So I think it's, you know, whatever tools we can get to educating these two generations that are coming up that are at risk, you know, we got to do it. So that definitely gives me warm fuzzies to know we're at least hopefully going to prevent this disease in some people because they will know the signs and symptoms. It's like I like to say, don't let embarrassment kill you. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
Speaking. Of, <laughs> go ahead. Go. Go ahead. Uh, I was just say I've, I've I've never had any shame. I think I've talked about blood in your stool and hemorrhoids and all my symptoms on the news, and we know with the media so many times. So no shame here. Absolutely. And if we and if we had any uh, modesty, that all went out the window a long time <laughs> ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Definitely. Speaking of your blog, uh, you you touched on a topic that I, I want to kind of delve into you into a little bit with you. you know, I talked to so many people, and there's a pretty recurring theme that a lot of people are able to see the the positive in their diagnosis. That there's been something they they've taken away. I've heard a few people say, in some ways, it's been a gift. I heard Michael Holtz tell me if it was a gift, I'd give it back. Um, <laughs> But you talk about, in one of your earlier blog posts, Sarah, uh, about the toll that the disease uh, took on your on your marriage. And that's not a topic that I've had the opportunity to talk to other people about here on this podcast, but it's, it's a real thing. And uh, it's kind of a place I wanted to go and, and get your thoughts on not just your own experience, but how you've seen that impact the lives of other people like yourself. I, I would say when I've, I would go around other survivors, go to conferences, read other people's stories, there is that common theme of my amazing spouse, my amazing caregiver. I, I couldn't do this without them. And they would talk about the bond or the improvement to their relationship or it saved their marriage. And I would kind of feel like the odd man out because I was married at the time of my diagnosis uh, my ex-husband's amazing. We're great friends. He's very much my caregiver if I need him to be um, and has gone to many infusions um, over the years. But going into my diagnosis, I think our marriage is already struggling. And I had always been hoping there would be this catalyst that would bring us together. Like some miracle, some magical thing would happen. And all of a sudden, our we, we would have the connection and the chemistry and the bond that I wanted to have in a marriage but didn't have. And when I was diagnosed with cancer, I thought, oh, this could be it. This could be the thing that finally makes my marriage work and makes me close to my husband. And it was at my very first oncology appointment that my oncologist said to us, and my dad was in the room at the time too. And the first thing he said, and it still sticks with me to this day, is cancer either makes or breaks a marriage. And I thought, oh my gosh, how can he tell? Does it like, I must've looked like a deer in headlights because why, why would he say that? Like, I've just, he, you know, I'm, I'm here to get treatment and I'm here to find out about my cancer, my tumor. And he's talking about marriage. And I realized after the fact, he could probably tell because I'm sure my ex-husband and I were sitting about three feet apart, not touching, not interacting, where he's accustomed to seeing couples in this intimate moment, in this horrible moment, being close, holding hands, you know, arm in arm. And, and so he could probably look at us and tell there was definitely disrepair in the relationship and, and gave me that advice which, you know, I kind of kept close at hand, you know, for the first year of treatment, still waiting for that magical moment when the marriage would all of a sudden heal and be amazing. And, and I thought I was going to die because I'd had cancer. And so as, as the months went on in treatment, I thought, you know, he's a great guy. He'll be there for me till the end. He'll take care of me, sickness and in health. He'll do anything I ask. And, and this is a good person to spend the rest of my life with, to, to be with me at the end of my life. And about 18 months into to treatment, I was stable and I wasn't dead and I wasn't dying. And I was looking at a long-term forecast of treatment, but I was still just as unhappy and miserable in my marriage as I was in the beginning. 
And at the time we were moving to Minnesota and he had gone out ahead of me uh, for a few months and I was alone, you know, sick as could be at the, uh, after my first 12 rounds of full fury, trying to sell a house. I had two little kids, you know, one was a baby and one was a preschooler. And I was happy for the first time in my life, despite how sick I was. And I realized it was because it was the marriage was what was ultimately at the root of it. And being separated from him actually was a relief for me. And I realized in that moment that, you know what, life is too short to be unhappy. And I don't want to disvalue marriage or, or talk about, you know, breaking of the vows. But I was so unhappy and fighting cancer. And I thought, is it right to be this miserable while fighting this disease? And something needed to change. And so we had moved and, and several things happened. But ultimately, the marriage did end um, very amicably. We're still, like I say, great friends. And, you know, it was a slow process breaking it apart. But I felt very alone. And I wouldn't say embarrassed, but isolated because I would go to events and I'd meet people and they'd be with their partners. And I was almost embarrassed to admit that cancer ruined, not ruined, but cancer was the end of my marriage. And I, I felt like I was the only one. And it was the more people I met, the more conferences and events I went to, I slowly started meeting a few other people who had the same story whose marriages were not great, they were not strong, they had cracks in them before diagnosis, and cancer was ultimately the catalyst that ended their marriage as well. And the more people I talked to, the more people shared their stories, and I realized I was not only not alone, there was a lot of people harboring the same guilt and the same shame and struggling through the same things I was struggling through and still living in it. And it was a breath of fresh air for them to know, like me, they weren't alone in the marriage struggles. And is it is it worth staying married just because you have cancer? Because um, that's, a, it's you know, ending a marriage is a lot to take on. And it's not something I'd obviously, you know, recommend. But um, I was at a point in my treatment, my disease, I was stable, I was healthy, felt good most of the time that I could take that on. Um, but I know for a lot of people, you know, they, they're dealing with end of life decisions, or they're still in crisis. And so their marriage is a mess, but there's nothing they could really do about it. Um, but I've had a lot of people come and talk to me privately since opening up with my story about their own struggles and what to do, you know, and I can't really give advice for anybody in their relationship, but, you know, just to let people know, especially the newly diagnosed that, that cancer, chemo, surgery, radiation, recovery is going to probably be the biggest strain on your relationship. And like my doctor said, know that it will make or break and, um, just be prepared for that because it's one more casualty of this disease. I think that happens a lot more often than people are willing to admit. I'm just blown away that your oncologist picked up on that. that I'm still taking that part in and, yeah. and much respect and admiration for someone mm -hmm. to not only pick up on that, but to vocalize it. Yeah. I mean, I thought he was, he was younger. He had just moved to the area he ran from a Memorial Sloan Kettering. So, you know, he was, I would say closer to my age than most oncologists I've had. But, you know, I don't know if it's something, a standard line he gives to all his patients, but, or just us, because he could possibly tell that we needed to hear that. Um, but I thought it was great advice. You know, I think a lot of times doctors lose the, the humanity. You know, they be, they're so technical. It's so scientific. You know, patients are just these numbers. But, I, you know, I, I thought in terms of a doctor, just having that little bit of humanity, you know, made a big difference. Not just in my treatment and my mindset at the time, but obviously, you know, knowing that, you know, that it was, I'm going to say okay for the marriage to end, but there was a likely possibility given the state of our marriage to start with. 
when we were talking before we started recording, the word you used was was magnify, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think that's the right word because uh, it'll magnify where there's weaknesses. I think it also, and unfortunately for me in my personal situation, it'll magnify where there's strength too. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, either way. Um, and and I and I appreciate you sharing, uh, you know, a, 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 a personal story like that. And I know people listening uh, will certainly benefit from that. So I appreciate that. What is your view? We were also talking before we started. You know, what is you look into the future? And I, I know you're not an oncologist or a doctor, but what do your senses tell you that stage four might look like uh, down the road? Um, for me personally, um, I've had five oncologists and every single one of them has told me I'm chronic. Um, my current oncologist who I adore at the University of Minnesota has said, we, we just need to keep you stable long enough until something comes out. The cure is coming. He's a firm believer in immunotherapy. He's just a few years older than me. Um, and he's just so excited about trials and what's to come. And so for him, and it's the same kind of take I take on my diseases, I just got to stay chronic and stable long enough for the, the next thing to come along. And I think the fact that I personally have made it almost six years and I'm still in what I call like the first line drugs, you know, I've done the Folfox, Herbitox and Irina Tcan. I'm still in the, in the original or what the current standard line of treatment is. And I'm almost six years into that. So I still feel like I have so many more options to go. Um, and there's so many trials out there. And, and I think I'm, I'm one of those, as psychology today said in that article, I'm one of the new survivors. You know, you're one of the new survivors. We're, we're, I think stage four disease is going to become a long-term survivorship thing where we may never get to remission. But as, uh, another oncologist I had that Kim Newcomer and I both share and we both love, she said, it's like a chronic disease where, you know, diabetes used to kill people High blood pressure used to kill people. And she's like, and now look, we have medications to control these. And rather than killing people, they're just chronic diseases. And that my hope, aside from cures, is that stage four cancer can just become a chronic disease that we can control with the right medication. From your mouth to God's ears, right? Well, Sarah, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and sharing your story. Where can people find you online? Um everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) I'm talking to a social media expert. That was kind of a silly question. (laughs) Um, I have my personal accounts. Um, They can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, which I do love Instagram and Snapchat, which I don't use that often. Um, And also I have a blog, coloncancerchick.com. Great. Well, Kim, uh, Kim was kind enough. So shout out to her for putting us together. And uh, will you be at the conference in November? I will be. Yay. Oh, awesome. Great, so, great, great. Everybody will meet me because I walk around with Vanessa Gigliotti. We are the newbie walk. Uh, <laughs> the <laughs> selfie, the <laughs> selfie team. <laughs> the se- well, we, we take selfies, but we want everybody, if, you know, if it's your first time going to the conference, you know, we, you will meet us. Mm-hmm. We probably will annoy you because we get a little excited about new people. Um, but we want to make sure that everybody meets, greets, feels connected, finds their people and feels welcome and loved. And, you know, it's a, it's a great place. I, you know, I, I know a few people that are coming for the first time. And yes. I said, you will walk away on a high yes. because you will have all the hope in the world, you know, that you can beat this and live with this and, and you'll meet your people. 
Yes, uh, I can't wait. This will be my fourth one. We will be podcasting from there. Uh, so for those people that, that can't be there, to give me the chance to interview some of the presenters and share it online and have a way for people to connect. And uh, I think we're going to try to do what we did at the Sage War Symposium last year and bring people over to the podcast table and let people come over and record holiday greetings that we can post on future episodes. So we're going to have a little fun with this. And I'd love to be part of that posse uh, with you and Vanessa. I just adore her. She's just, <laughs> we, were, we were kidding on Facebook today as a matter of fact uh uh so i i can't wait to see her too and everybody else and uh, i'm gonna try to do a group shot of everybody that's been on the show awesome. so uh obviously you'll be a part of that so but thanks again and i appreciate you spending the time sharing your story and i wish you just uh continued stability how's that yeah. and uh you know stable is a word you and i both adore and let's 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 stay there and just uh, all the best to you Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Colon Cancer Podcast, and thank you to our sponsor, H2ORS. The Colon Cancer Podcast is a proud sponsor of Genie's Blue Angels, providing financial support to those affected by colorectal cancer. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Colon Cancer Podcast. Notes from this episode can be found on our website at thecoloncancerpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on our website, on iTunes, or on the Stitcher app for listeners using an Android device. If you or a loved one has a question about colon cancer, please visit the Colon Cancer Alliance website at www.ccalliance.org. Again, that's www.ccalliance.org. You can also email your questions to us at info at the colon cancer Thanks again for listening. Be well, everyone.